Welcome to a new episode of our podcast. Hello, my name is Gaston, and in this very episode of this podcast, I am joined by Karthik Krishnan. How are you doing, Karthik? I'm doing spectacular, thank you. Karthik is the global CEO of the Britannica Group, which is the company that owns and runs famous brands as Merriam-Webster, Malingo, and world-famous Encyclopedia Britannica, founded in 1768, and thus being the oldest encyclopedia in English. He is also a professor at the New York University and a very passionate man when it comes to education. Did I miss anything? Uh, I think uh, in addition to that, I work with Urban Abound, which is a nonprofit that focuses on improving the lives of people who live in public housing. Uh, in fact, we have actually put together a jobs program for the parents who live in those communities. We have a financial fitness program uh, to help them get access to credit and bank loans. Uh, we also help the children in those communities get into college. And uh, finally, we also focus on community revitalization efforts. Our goal is to tackle poverty and change lives. So overall, I would say I'm passionate about lifelong learning, transformative leadership, and societal impact. Excellent. Um, so here's a bit of background, a, a bit of behind the scenes uh, to you and to our audience. Uh, you know, the, the students that organize the SABF are uh, from an institute of technology in Buenos Aires, and, and most of us study engineering. And when doing some research about you, we found out you are an engineer. Um, how did you become an expert in the media industry? That is true. I do have an undergrad degree in electronics and communication. While I was initially enamored and attracted to bits and bytes, I was even more enamored when Tim Berners-Lee from Stern unleashed a way to hypertext link contents and make them available from every single node on a network, what is well known today as the World Wide Web. So as I was going through my college experience, the World Wide Web was starting to emerge and I was completely enamored by it. So this put me on an exciting journey to work with uh, magazine brands, including Runner's World, Backpacker, Mountain Biking, Interior Design, Hotels, and Variety, right? So what I did was I tried to help them establish their digital presence. So as the World Wide Web Capabilities Group, I helped these brands adapt those capabilities to really engage the users in a very different way. There's a big difference between taking a PDF article or like a printed article and converting that into an HTML or a PDF and putting it online. Mm -hmm. But it's also much more exciting when you can use the advantages of each of that medium to have a big impact. To give you an example, you know, uh, one of the editors at uh, Prevention, I walked up to her and said, do you mind writing about coral calcium? And she was like, Karthik, what are you talking about coral calcium? I said, I'm on the internet. I mean, this was in the early 90s. And uh, people were talking about coral calcium and how it actually has a much higher absorption rate compared to other things. So when I learned about all this chatter, I went to her and she wrote an article about coral calcium. And for the prevention magazine, this became one of the best sellers in terms of single copy sales. So again, the fact that you know, you're able to have a pulse into how people react to content are things that we could never have done in the print world, but online gave that opportunity. So from discussion forums to electronic uh, commerce 
I think we are able to use analytics and data to inform a lot of the decisions and find out better ways to engage with that audience. So that is something that I really love about the online world. So my journey from being an engineer to a media a professional happened based on my excitement and more importantly, my willingness to learn and adapt to new things that are being thrown at us, which is what happens in the 21st century world. And what do you teach at NYU? I teach a course on business of media. This is an elective course, which is a part of an EMT specialization, which is entertainment, media and technology specialization at the business school. And the goal is to provide students a working knowledge of the media industry. Uh -huh. And uh, this explores how disruptive forces like digitization, consumer generated media, content aggregation are really reshaping the industry in a very short period of time. And because of that, how do these brands have to evolve in terms of new business models? What's driving M&A? And uh, these are the concepts that we discuss in class. It's a very interactive session. And uh, I spend a lot of time doing this in a Socratic way. We talk about what do you think you would do in this situation? So the goal is to help students think and come up with their own answers. And you would be surprised. We're all capable of navigating to the right answers provided you're being asked the right questions. So the goal for me is to inspire curiosity and ensure that, you know, these students pursue their own learning journeys. Interesting. Uh, you said you teach about business of media and you are the CEO of Britannica. Yeah. Um, here's um, whatever the opposite of a softball is. Um, how do you make an encyclopedia profitable in 2020 when the internet is flooded with free information? It's a great question. Competing with free is a challenge, not only for reputed providers of vetted reference material like encyclopedias, but it's also a challenge for purely digital organizations, including the Yahoo's of the world and the Vice Media's of the world. I think uh, today, you know, the internet is awash with information. Imagine, you know, 20 years ago, when I had to go and look for some information, I had to request my parents to either take me to a library or I would take a public transportation to go to a library. And uh, I would have to go there, look for a book, speak to a librarian. And in some cases, the book might not be available. I had to wait. But today we have moved into what is called an instant gratification world where I have a device like this in my hand uh, through which I can actually collect information and look at it on the fingertips. But at the same time, today people expect information for free. I think there are people who will go to the end of the, in the internet to look for information that's free. And uh, there are people uh, not ready to pay for some of these things. So in this context, the key is to find the intersection among what the user values what the organization is good at, and what helps one monetize the content that's being put out. So understanding what the user values is key. And I think I talked about the concept of uh, intellectual laziness, right? In a world that's awash with information, even if you do a search on the internet for something like plastic straws, you're going to get 2 million documents out there. None of us have the time to go through those 2 million records. So we, in a way, expect technology to find those answers for us. And most of us are programmed to click on the top two or three search results that show up. And we don't even look at what is that source, who wrote it. So in this kind of a world, what we realize is that people value convenience. So the focus of most information providers should be to say, how do I ensure that people can consume this information in different channels? So from a Britannica point of view, we focus on search, video, 
for voice, social, and internet of things. Mm-hmm. So the reason why we focus on search is because that's the starting point for most people. And in most cases, they start with a question. So we've launched products like Britannica Insights, which not only give people an answer, it actually helps them understand a concept in its entirety. What I mean by that is, for example, if you do a search on a topic like, say, French Revolution, which is a very encyclopedic topic, instead of saying this is when the French Revolution happened, in addition to it, the content is structured in a way it tells you who are the key people involved with the French Revolution. What are the causes? What are the outcomes? And this is a learning framework so that people are not just walking away with the definition of a, a French Revolution. They have a navigation map to understand that topic in entirety. What are the key events that happen? So this way, I think we make it easier for people to consume that information that they're looking for. In a way, we help them save time, learn more, and be sure. So again, this speaks to the fact of driving convenience, which is something that people want today. Uh-huh. The second is, as you know, video is how the next generation consumes information. I'm used to much more of a textbook reading information from that. But when I look at my own kids, they spend an inordinate amount of time watching videos. That's how they learn. So in our case, we've actually taken a lot of our content and converted that into a video format that are short form that people can understand. In fact, we even have a partnership with YouTube where we're helping YouTube fight conspiracy theories, not only with videos, but giving them text on what's known and what's unknown. So for topics like moon landing, did this really happen? The Malaysian airline disappearance, we do these things. The third piece is looking at voice. Down the line, we're all going to be using voice, which is much more efficient as a form of communication. So we actually launched a product called Guardians of History for Amazon Alexa and Google Home. And for students who can't even read, they can still use voice to communicate with this particular device to learn about ancient Greece. And the way this is done is it's science fiction blended with facts. You get Chronocode catapulted into Greece. And the goal is for you to help Jason win the Olympics. So as you go through that particular exercise, you actually understand more about Greece. You learn about what kinds of currency do they use? What are the things that you need to do to please Zeus? So you understand all these concepts using a voice-based interactive experience. And finally, on the social side, you know, we actually have created things like uh, demystify, hashtag what the fact. <laughs> and these are different ways in which we take the knowledge that's available and package it in different ways to drive utility for the audiences. So from our perspective, trust is going to become the new digital algorithm uh, because the world, as you said, is awash in information. So our goal is to do a few things. One is how do you help people save time, learn more, be sure. And we also think in the future, because trust is going to be the new digital algorithm, the world is going to move from volume of information to value of information. The world is also going to move from relevance to what is right. I think in that model, we will focus on still driving utility and monetize any of our content that we have. Even though we are an encyclopedia, the mediums in which we operate might change, but our mission does not. Mm-hmm. Um, the last printed version of Britannica, which is over 250 years old, as we said, was its 15th edition. Now, I'm no Pythagoras, but I believe that leaves, on average, around 17 years between editions. How do you keep updated when the world changes every day? 
As you rightfully pointed out, Britannica is a 250-year-old organization. And throughout its 250-year history, the brand has embraced change, broken boundaries, and exhibited what I call organization learning agility. So even going back to the first edition of Britannica from 1768, uh, the French Revolution had not happened. Uh, the United States was not even formed at that point. And three founders who did not come from a lot of money in the middle of the Scottish Enlightenment decided to create an English encyclopedia. Why did they do it? 250 years ago, Latin was the language of the rich and the famous and the intellects. English was the language of the common man. They wanted to enable and empower the common man to be able to learn and advance in society. Mm -hmm. So when you think about Britannica, uh, the three founders actually started off with something that's called a Kickstarter campaign today. They actually took money from people and actually delivered each chapter as a fascicle. So this is like one chapter at a time. And over a period of 18 years, sorry, 18 months, it's not 18 years, over a period of 18 months, they put together the first encyclopedia. So as you look at the first edition of uh, Encyclopedia, the preface says utility, and the word is in all caps. Utility ought to be the principal intention of any publication. Second sentence, wherein this intention does not plainly appear, neither the book nor the authors have the smallest claim to the approbation of mankind. So they basically said, if you can't drive utility in the world, you might as well die. <laughs> and that mission and that vision is still true today. So Britannica, going back to our history, right, did not, was not forced to digitize. In fact, as early as 1970s, we worked with people like Marvin Minsky to really understand digital publishing. In the 1980s, we launched the first digital encyclopedia. We launched the first CD-ROM multimedia encyclopedia four years before Microsoft Encarta even came into the market. So what I'm saying here is that, you know, Britannica is an organization that constantly look at what's coming down the pike and we constantly adapt to technologies that are coming up. That's the reason why we're thinking about IoT. We have a partnership with Samsung because tomorrow or like five years from now, it's going to be much of a commonplace for us to have a conversation with a television or a microwave oven or a refrigerator. And that's how we're going to be consuming information. So from our perspective, we are medium agnostic and our goal is to have as many engaging channels with our audience that we serve and how do we create a meaningful experience for them so that they can continue to consume information and learn more and be successful. Mm -hmm. I don't think we mentioned this, but you are a collaborator to a World Economic Forum. I am. Uh, you recently wrote an article there on the future of education where you said, and I quote, education is now in crisis. Why is that so? Always felt that education has been the shortest bridge between the haves and the have-nots. That's also a personal experience. I did not come from a lot of money, but without the right education and the experiences, I would not be here in front of you all doing what I'm doing today. The second thing is that education is also a great social equalizer. Education historically has been the key to advancement for individuals, families, communities, and countries. Unfortunately, as you know, the current education system is losing its transformative power. And what I mean by that is the path from education 
to employability to economic independence is kind of broken. And there are multiple reasons why this is happening. Let's take a look at a few criteria. Number one, the role of education is to prepare us for a life ahead and make us job ready. But what we find is that 34% of the students feel that they know they aren't being prepared for jobs that are being created. When you look at, from, look at it from an employer's point of view, 43% of employers are saying that they don't find enough skilled entry-level workers to do the jobs that they have. So there is a mismatch between what we're pumping out of universities and what the industry is looking for. If that is the situation today, imagine a world where we have artificial intelligence and smart intelligence actually coming through. We live in a world where I have my daughter in middle school and 60% of the jobs the elementary school students of today are going to have have not been defined yet. Mm -hmm. 40% of those students today are likely to be entrepreneurs or self-employed. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, is the education system really helping us become job ready to take on these kinds of challenges where the jobs have not been defined yet or to become entrepreneurs? The second thing that I find is that our current education system was built on the backs of the Industrial Revolution. During the Industrial Revolution, what we did was we took our muscle power and converted that into machine power. And we needed people to operate those machines and do things. So the big focus on education was much more on standardization and memorization. I should be in a position to replace Gaston with Karthik and things should still work. But unfortunately today with smart machines, Anything that's repetitive and standardized can be done by machines much, much faster and better. So in that kind of a world, AI is likely to replace a lot of those jobs that are standardized and templatized. Mm -hmm. So in that second context, you know, I personally feel that our education system of today is not adequately focusing on helping people compete against smart machines for jobs. And finally, I'm also looking at the long-term ability to create economic value. Uh, particularly in the US, the cost of education is pretty high. That is true all across the world. It's actually going up. Students in the US have about $1.5 trillion in student loan. And the first job most people have coming out of college gives them about forty dollars to $50,000 a year. And it takes them almost like well into their 40s and the 50s before they can pay off their student loan, which was not the case 20 years ago. So from my perspective, the relevance of today's education to meet the 21st century demands and the rising cost of education leads to poor ROI. All these things indicate that, you know, we're actually burning the candles at both ends. So from my perspective, that's the reason why I feel that education is in a state of crisis today. And my goal is, you know, how do we work to put education on a path to prosperity rather than on a path to disappointment? Okay, uh, you just said in your answer that 60% uh, of the jobs that uh, your daughter and middle schoolers will occupy haven't been uh, defined yet, haven't been created. Um, how can we prepare students when we can't even imagine them? Very true. I think the question here is, if you do not know what's going to come down the pike, how do you prepare? The answer is pretty simple. We all have to become machines that can think learn and evolve. Unfortunately, most of us go through an education system which makes us pretty passive. I mean, we all come out of an education system with a fixed mindset. 
we go to an engineering school, we think that we're engineers, right? But the role of an engineer could change. So my view is that how do we focus on ensuring that we actually do not lose an innate sense that we're born with? We're born as learning machines. If you're around a two-year-old or a three-year-old, you can see that, you know, that baby, whether it's a him or a her, is walking around asking you questions. Why is the sky blue? Why can't I do this? He or she would take a pen or a pencil, put it in its mouth, in their mouth, and try to taste things. Uh-huh. We are curious human beings, right? That's how we're born. But unfortunately, by the time we even get into our elementary school, that curiosity dies. We stop asking questions. The propensity to ask questions goes down. As you get into university, in most cases, we are not focusing on learning, right? We're trying to get through the system. So the goal is, how do we help students help get a growth mindset? That's one part. The second is, how do you help them develop emotional intelligence? Particularly in a social media-driven world, most people are today comfortable conversing with somebody from behind a screen, texting. Your friend could be sitting next to you, but you don't want to have a conversation. So focusing on emotional intelligence. And finally, resilience. The reason why resilience is important is we all have to invent and reinvent ourselves multiple times during the 21st century. Because the jobs have not been defined yet. And even if you get into a job, that job might change five years from now or 10 years from now. So we have to constantly go on a path to reinvent ourselves. And if you don't have the resilience to actually deal with those kinds of changes, then you're going to see more of anxiety, depression, and all these things are things that people will have to go through. We don't have to look too far. There is an amazing futurist called Alvin Toffler who said this in the 1970s. He said, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write. It will be those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. Excellent. I'm going to go back to one of the very first questions. Uh, when you were talking about your lessons at NYU, you said that um, you apply a Socratic method. Uh, what concrete methods are there to apply these ideas like uh, emotional intelligence or uh, resilience and all that you mentioned in a classroom? I think one of the things to understand is there is a significant difference between education and learning. Education is extrinsic, whereas learning is intrinsic. Education is driven by a curriculum. Learning, on the other hand, is driven by curiosity. Education is passive. Learning is active. The moment we actually start focusing on learning as opposed to education, I think the world transforms in a significant way. In which case, you know, the outcome of learning will not be about a grade and a certificate. It will be about experiences and skills. So that's a simple way for us to think about it. And when you start thinking about education as learning, then the environment that you would create would be different. The way we as a student approach that particular situation would become completely different. And once we start learning, no matter what the world is going to throw at us, I think we're going to be in a really, really good position to take on those challenges and adapt and excel. Mm-hmm. And to wrap up, um, you know, uh, our audience is mostly made up of university students. Uh, 
What message do you send to those who are still going through the education system? I would say focus on three things. Learning agility, initiative, and drive. And learning agility is the ability for you to walk into any situation and learn pretty quickly, or even apply what you've learned in the past in that new setting. That is one of the most important skills. The second is taking initiative. The days of things being top down, right, where somebody sitting at the top telling you what to do is going to change. I think people across the organization need to play an active role in shaping an organization for success. So in that kind of a world, you need to take initiative and say, I see a new trend that's surfacing. Smart watches are everywhere. What are we as an organization going to do to ensure that, you know, we take on that platform and use it productively to drive utility, right? So initiative is going to be another key factor. The third one is drive. Today, focus is something that we're all lacking, right? We get distracted pretty easily. How do you see things through? Ideas are great, but if you can't deliver and execute, it's never going to work. So as students or even for anybody else, if you can focus on learning agility, initiative and drive, I think the world is going to be very different. The other one that I would see, I would say for students, especially for us who are focusing much more on IQ, IQ is important. But at the same time today, we all have supporting machines that can enable us to look up information. So the focus should not just be on IQ. We should focus on emotional intelligence, which is how do you connect and communicate with people, collaborate with people. And finally, RQ, which is resilient quotient. We're all going to be pushed in multiple areas. We're going to succeed. We're going to fail. But the ability to mentally be strong, it's not how hard you fall. It's how fast you get up that matters. So as long as you have the resilience and we all become really well built to take on the 21st century. So let's focus on learning agility, initiative and drive. And more importantly, as you go through the student experience or the learning experience, Equally focus on the EQ and the RQ parts along with IQ. And I think that really helps us all be successful in the long run, no matter what the 21st century world is going to throw at us. Tell me, uh, where can we find you online? You can find me on LinkedIn. And I also have a Twitter handle. It's Karthik on the go. Great. Um, well, it's been a pleasure having you here. I think this podcast leaves um, a lot to reflect upon, a lot to think about. Gaston, I appreciate you having me on your show. And more importantly, I wish your student communities and the communities that you connect with the best. As much as the world looks pretty challenging, I think there are simple skills that we can develop to make it much more exciting. And in doing so, I'm positive that we can actually create a brighter future for all. So best wishes. Thank you very much for listening. Make sure to join us on our next episode. 